I think I bought it in um, New York. Right. You know, there were a lot of time spent in New York in the 60s where I was uh, <clears throat> traveling around with Cream. And I can't remember whether I was with Cream. It may have been. I played this on Guitar Gently Weeps, you know. See, George is capable, would have been capable of setting this up. I remember bringing it back from America and wanting to give it to him because I, I, I already had one, I think. I had the, another Les Paul. Um, and then I, and I gave it to him and I think when, when he asked me to do the, the session for Gently Weeps, I did because I did. He drove, he, I, it sounds right because he, he picked me up from where I was living in London and said, we're going to go over to the studio, do you, do you want to come along? And I, and I said, yeah. And he said, well, um, I want you to play on something. And I didn't have a guitar because I was just got in the car with him, you know, and so I, he gave me this to play. So he could have put a Marshall in there knowing that he was going to ask me to come and play, you know, just to make it like, well, we got this and we got that, you know. <laughs> My ideal setup for a long time then was a Gibson, a Les Paul through a Fender Twin, only because that sounded like the Marshall, because the original, um, the original partnership was was a Les Paul through a, 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 a you know a small Marshall, the Blues Breakers setup, and and that was pretty hard to. Re I mean, it, I never got a Marshall again. They were all unique. And, and what I liked about discovering the, the, the twins was that, you know, they were pretty much made to a, a similar pattern. You know, you get a, a 50s twi tweed twin and it would sound just like you, the last one or the other one, you know. And consistent and, and great, for, great for Les Pauls, really thick. Welcome to this week's Winlayless Fab. I'm Ed Chan. And I'm Martin Quibell. Joining us this week, a man we've had on the show several times, a man who was actually on the White Album Tour with Todd Rundgren, Darren Murphy. Hello. <laughs> um, Did you guys actually uh, pay some attention to the guitars that you were playing on that tour to make them match up with the actual White Album guitars? <laughs> it's great to be back, guys. To answer your question, no. I think all of the guitar players just brought their own guitars that they were comfortable with and their own amps that they were comfortable with. Then they just did their best to get close to the actual guitar parts. And I was the drummer on that tour, so I didn't have anything to do with how the guitarists behaved. But I just made sure that I had a really good sounding set of Ludwig drums, and they happened to have one with an oyster black pearl finish on it. So I got very lucky. Yay! That was several years ago, just before COVID. And then you've also done the uh, Rubber Soul Revolver Tour. I guess that was last year. That's right. And that time I was the guitar player. I was one of several guitar players on that tour. So I brought an Epiphone Casino with me, and then I brought a little Vox Overdrive pedal. I just played that through a Fender Princeton, and it got close enough. All right, we got a little bit of news that we're going to talk about before we go into our main topic. McCartney has put out some feelers, and the Australian Tourist Board has picked them up. The press in Australia is reporting that Paul is going to be doing half a dozen shows in Australia. I had honestly gotten to the point where I was thinking that he was done. Wow. 
Well, I guess he'd had a bit of time off and he got to rest his pipes a little. When was the last time? Uh, he The last time it was a year ago. He, uh, he did up through like Glastonbury, which was late summer, almost exactly a year ago. Yeah. Okay. But, but the break for the pandemic, that did his pipes a load of good as well when, when it came back out on tour, I think. He sounded better in that last tour than he has in a while. Yeah. I mean, the other reason he would go and do an Australian tour is he owes them one. He uh, he had an Australian tour. Oh, I mean, you know, now we're looking at like eight or nine years ago. I'll reschedule. He never rescheduled. So, you know, this may just picking up that obligation. Yeah, always come back around. Yeah. You got to do it for the Yeah, fans. exactly. So. Music legend Sir Paul McCartney is coming to Adelaide, three decades since he last performed here. The former Beatles frontman to open his highly anticipated Australia tour in Adelaide, with tickets expected to be snapped up quickly. 30 years since his last Adelaide concert. McCartney mania is set to take over the city once again. Hey, good day Australia, Paul McCartney here. And listen, I'm coming down to see you in October. The music legend to kick off his Got Back tour in Adelaide, where Beatles pandemonium gripped the city back in 1964. Who knows whether he's going to continue from there. They are still labeling it as the Got Back tour, which is the name of the tour from last year. But it's entirely possible he's not actually done. Ringo is still out there and Ringo sounds really good. I just saw him a couple weeks back in San Francisco on his current tour. Oh, great. Who was on that tour right now? It is still Steve Lukather, Hamish Stewart, Greg Bissonette. Warren Ham is a sax player. Yep. Edgar Winter is the other one. Yes. And Colin Hay. Men at work. Colin Hay. Oh, yeah. So that's pretty much everybody on this version of the All-Stars. Colin Hay is fantastic. Yeah, it's a really good show. And Warren Ham is a much more versatile guy. He's Even though I've seen him before, I came off more impressed by him this tour than I have in the past. And it turns out that he's actually done loads and loads of stuff that I didn't know he was part of. All right. I knew I had a great gig, possibly the best gig of all time. Didn't really hit me until I took my horns into my horn guy. And the guy goes, boy, what's it like to work with a beetle? That's when it really hit me. Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm playing with a beetle. How cool is that? I practice every day. I still enjoy pulling out my horns, harmonicas, and messing around with it. These days, I'm just grateful to be a working musician in a time where the music business is really, really tough right now. All of the ways to make money has to do with going on the road. The other thing that's going on right now, Pendulette had said that the new Beatles single was going to be out Come September, we had kind of bantered around, is that actually going to be the release date? But what I'm hearing is September the 29th. Um, All right. Setting my calendar. So an, an announcement probably in the next couple of weeks. As I mentioned to Kit, so who didn't Mark Lapidos pay off that the announcement is going to come the week of the Chicago Fest? <laughs> <laughs> so when they talk about releasing, are they talking about putting out a physical piece of media? Or are they releasing it for streaming? There will certainly be a physical release, and almost certainly it's going to be part of the revised Red and Blue. Okay. Oh, okay. So for whatever reason, their plans for a Help Rubber Soul Box this year seems to have been delayed. Okay. And so in place of that, they still had to put something out, and that would seem to be why Paul went into the studio and was like, okay, look, we can finish this. Let's finish this. What is yeah. presumably now and then, and I still have no clue why they are being so secretive about the title. Um, well, you know how they are. They like the element of surprise. I know Paul talked a long time ago how he was determined to get that track finished. Now that George can't stop In him. the Jeff Lynne <laughs> special, yes. The couple of rumors that are going around about Red and Blue is that they will both be expanded, uh, possibly... A three disc and a three disc, so six discs total rather than four. Wouldn't it have worked better if they could have staggered the release of the song and made it John's birthday? I'm trying to think what day John's birthday would be on this year. Uh, October the 9th. It's a Monday. So the 6th is the Friday before, if it's a Monday. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the 29th okay. gets close to it. 
I just thought it would have been a nice birthday present for John. <laughs> it still may be. I mean, the the date of the 29th is kind of tentative from what I hear. They could still push it back a week, but that seems to be what they have told people that it's the week of the 29th. If they do it that way, then they can promote the heck out of it on John's birthday. Absolutely. There you go. So they put it on the 29th, and then all of us musicians who are planning John Lennon birthday tributes will have plenty of time to absorb the song and work it up and perform it live. <laughs> Smart thinking, guys. Really good. No, they're thinking of you. They're not thinking of the rest of the audience. Darren's That's on right. the money there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what do you think of what Pendulette said? A couple things there. A, the idea that they're using this outtake of because is the basis of the backing vocal hmm. um if it's an authentic piece that they actually did and all of those recordings are kind of pastiches by now might as well throw it in if it works if it fits if it feels right what Penn said was that they took it off you know sort of love style and they changed the pitch to match the song whatever that may be now and then they changed the pitch oh that's sacrilege man <laughs> that is what they say is going on with that uh ringo said he did add a new drum track ringo didn't say anything about paul recording new vocals but pendulette says that paul recorded some new vocals and they de-aged them using ai is that real that is what Penn said on his podcast okay i you oh, know huh. Listening back to a recording, how would he know that it was done unless he was there while that was actually being done to the vocal? If he's listened to it with the completed vocal, he wouldn't know that, would he? Well, presumably Giles told him. What I'm kind of thinking is, you know, maybe he did some vocals way back when in the 90s as part of anthology, but he didn't like one or two little pieces. I can see him doing some punch-ins and it's like, well, but that doesn't match. Oh, but we can AI this bit so it matches either side. That is my guess. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I reckon so. If it's something like that, for if you're building backing vocals around a lead vocal, I suppose that's all right. I have issues with de-aging, especially where uh, Paul McCartney's voice is concerned because every recording that, I'm familiar with. There's a certain time period that's associated with it. And so if you, if you take a current Paul McCartney vocal and then you de-age it, what do you de-age it to? Do you de-age it to 1965 or to 1975 or to 1985? There are three completely different vocal styles. If you recorded some vocals during the anthology, then, then they have something to match it to. Yeah. yeah. He could get the effect that he wanted, you know, because from all accounts, they did decide to quit pretty quickly once they were absolutely told there's no way we're going to get this hum off of this thing. John's lead vocal. Yeah. So from all accounts, that is why George just said no. <laughs> I believe the word he used was rubbish. As Paul says, it's, but it's John Lennon, but it's rubbish, John Lennon. But, I mean, you know, <laughs> with Mal and with all the AI technology, not AI, machine learning is how you isolate bits and pieces. That we pretty much have no problem with. Yeah. So, forward and onward. Forward and onward. Okay. <laughs> Revolver was kind of a guitar record, but Pepper really wasn't that much of a guitar record. Yeah, it was very much a keyboard record. Almost anything but guitars. The only big prominent guitar solos came from paul mccartney george was doing a lot of rhythm john was doing a lot of rhythm it's very little acoustic guitar uh, except in a couple of tracks uh, like lovely rita and a little bit of guitar in the background on lucy in the sky with diamonds you know otherwise it's not your usual Beatles sound and i think that was the point to do everything different and then as they move through Magical Mystery Tour, there's maybe a little bit more guitar on the tracks for Magical Mystery Tour, but some of those were just leftovers. Well, yeah, there were a few things that had been recorded previously. The title track for the film, for example, and All You Need Is Love, with that wonderful live guitar solo from George. Are you being sarcastic, or do you mean that? <laughs> Actually, it, it has a lot of soul to it. <laughs> It 
there's a, a little bit of a clam there, but when it comes in, it's perfect. Love life from the Ruddles. When they played that for George, George, just, his face just kind of dropped and said, you're taking the Mickey out of me, aren't you? Because <laughs> I mean, it, it has that same sort of, oh, I'm just going to kind of be a little bit lazy. And then I'm just going to stop in the middle of the guitar solo. Mm. But the whole thing about it is that it's ne- with the Beatles was never about what. It was always about when. And their timing on those tracks was just impeccable. And you can listen to a ton of Beatles outtakes and you can hear some George clams, sure. But when it came time to to really deliver the goods, there's a feel there that is so special. And that was the gift that George really brought. That's what bonded all those guys together is that they just all had this pocket that was really special that triggered an emotional response. Okay. Hey everybody, I'm Chris Thomas. Really excited to tell you about the D28 John Lennon 75th anniversary model. Obviously celebrating John's 75th birthday this past October and inspired by uh, John Lennon's own D28s that he used uh, in the latter part of the Beatles. Um, D28s were the instrument of choice that they took to uh, India where the White Album was conceived as one example. And basically this is a inspired by John's D28s. Uh, Some tonal upgrades from the original stock models. This is a Madagascar Rosewood uh, back and sides. It's an Adirondack spruce top with a vintage tone system. Really fast neck. Um, Completely decked out with John Lennon art. Beginning with John's self-portrait and pearl on the headstock. Moving up the ebony fingerboard, you've got um, instant karma lyrical references to the moon, the stars, and the sun, the reoccurring number nine, of course John's uh, eyeglasses on the 12th fret and his signature recreated on the 19th. And uh, we couldn't honor John without um, bringing to light the uh, his devotion to world peace and all he's done to promote that through his music and life. So we've adorned the sound hole with peace signs in pearl, nice big sun on the pit guard. And finally, we've constructed the back to resemble a, a huge peace sign. This instrument is limited to 75 pieces. The interior label depicts that by, uh, again, John's self-portrait and being numbered from one to 75. Strung with SB Lifespan strings, some monstrous sounding dreadnought, and a tribute to an absolute musical legacy. John and Paul have just gotten their martin d28s and those are the guitars they choose to take to india with them yes is that the guitar that john lost his pick in we have that meme that, of john holding up the guitar trying to find his lost pick oh no i've never seen that <laughs> oh, okay i will send that to you and i will post it on along with this show he's just holding up the guitar looking into the sound hole it's like he's clearly lost his pick in the guitar huh uh, From all accounts, George did not take a guitar with him to India. That's weird. Yeah, that's strange. Maybe George wasn't planning on writing songs in India. He was planning on focusing more on the meditation, and John and Paul saw it more as a vacation. So they could take some time, do some, do the meditation thing, but uh, also get some songs written. Well, and John was there with his wife, and Paul was there with uh, Jane Asher. They were busy doing other things. Well, I mean, as we see in Get Back, George was still kind of a little sore at John and Paul's reaction to Rishikesh, even a year later. 
I can't really blame him for that, <laughs> you know. <laughs> for four guys that have just been through the mill, had the best year of their career and then the worst year of their career with their manager passing away and then wrapping up with a magical mystery tour. They're just dying for some sort of change of scenery, you know, anything. And George was always going to be more into it than those guys but they made the best of it got a lot of songs written did a lot of jamming with donovan donovan brought his guitar the, uh, his, um, what did he have he brought his j45 <laughs> donovan was an enormous influence on what was to come because he was a finger picking player and i think all the guys really admired his finger picking style so he taught it to them and it was john that gravitated the most toward it he really worked it hard and that finger picking style yielded several songs that showed up on the white album happiness is a warm gun julia dear prudence even good night was originally written with that finger picking style the f sharp minor sounded out of the tune come on now it's time you little toddlers were in bed i'm having no more messing you've been out to the park all day you've had a lovely time now it's time for bed. Are we ready? Daddy will sing a song. Now it's time. It was me. If you do that again, are we ready? We'll sing the song. Yeah. Paul had a looser version, sort of pick strum version of it that he adopted that brought it into Blackbird, into Mother Nature's Son, and a little bit into Rocky Raccoon. McCartney wouldn't sit down. He didn't want to learn sitting. He was walking around with his guitar. He'd walk in, he'd walk out, he'd walk into the jungle, he'd come back, he'd listen to what John was learning. And Paul's so smart, he's a genius, of course. And Paul picked it up by ear. And his particular picking, when he learned it, was completely different. A very, very unusual way he was using the guitar picking. Uh, George didn't finger pick at all. <laughs> George wasn't so interested in the picking. I'm not sure why. Some of the things that George wrote post then, to me personally, I can hear inspiration, maybe chord progression wise, where George would do like a descending bass on songs as well, which Donovan used to do quite a lot. He was moving into songwriting himself and he wrote that beautiful While My Guitar Gently Weeps from the A minor, G, F sharp, F and E pattern which comes out of oh classical music new orleans blues and flamenco and these styles and these chord structures oh that's interesting not guilty is ever so slightly in that style yeah that's what i was one of those i was thinking of yeah okay we see pictures of john with donovan's j45 just sitting there playing it's interesting how paul would make some of these guitar songs he's writing into piano songs. The one I'm thinking in particular of is Obla Di Obla Da was started in India. Is that right? Yeah. He, Paul has a story that he and Jane had left the camp and they were just kind of strolling around. That was where Obla Di Obla Da began. Isn't that actually John playing the piano on the record? Is he playing it all the way through? Could be. I'm not sure. I mean, the legend is that he just kind of ran in sort of... Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. And even that had a little false start there at the beginning. Uh, the, the outtakes from that session, you have somebody going... Dun, 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 and then the whole thing kicks off. There are a couple of piano tracks on that recording. There's the tack piano, because of the sort of Mrs. Mills piano. And then there's another standard piano that's in there. Who knows what sort of overdub process took place on that particular version of it. But anyway, on to guitars. Let's talk about these two Martin D28s and how they were used on the next record. We know John used the D28 on Across the Universe, but when they got back from Rishikesh, there was another acoustic guitar that George had. George had a Gibson J200 that he brought in, and he used that on all of his compositions on the White Album. And we know that Paul used his Martin D28 for Blackbird, Mother Nature's Son, Rocky Raccoon. Um, what do we know about John and his... Julia is the J160. I'm pretty sure of that. Yeah. And the documentation is unclear, but it seems that he switched back and forth between the two guitars on the White Album. Okay. Can we tell from tone? 
You know, you listen to the songs. Do, do they sound different enough for you to be able to tell uh, this is this and this is that? Right. I wasn't aware that Julia was the J160. Doesn't sound like one at all. Hmm. But you just never know. Yeah, for, <laughs> the songwriting was certainly to a, an extent affected by the fact that they were sitting there writing all these songs on guitar in India. Mm-hmm. And then they all met at George's house in Esher. Is it Esher or Esher? Uh, Esher, I think. Okay. Martin, you're the one from that country. How do you pronounce it? You say Esher and I'll say Esher. And I'll be in Albany before you. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing about the demos is the Ken Fowles demos. Let's call it that. Say that again? Ken Fowles. Ken, is there an N, extra N in there? K-I-N-F-A-E. Ken Fowles. Yep. Yeah, Ken Fowles. Yep. There's an N in there. Okay. So, which is the name of the house. Okay. Oh, is that what it's called? Okay. Yeah. I mean, the bungalow. The demos, which have lots of names, or as it's now known, that other disc in the White Album box set. Well, that's right, yeah. find that there's always been a beautiful melodicism to the Beatles music anyway but do you think Darren that the fact that they wrote a lot of the material on those acoustics was something that helped to get the beautiful melodicism that that flows throughout the album partially yes but there were so many songs that were written on acoustic guitar strawberry fields as a grand example, written on acoustic guitar, but there's very little guitar in the final version at all. I think John was always looking for some way, some sort of vehicle to realize the sounds that were in his head. And he had something there. He'd use a guitar to kind of get a basic sketch of the, of the tune. Yeah. And then he said, all right, well, what can we add to this? How can we make this different? And then that's when George Martin might come in and suggest a different instrument. Or they had a, a Hammond B3 in the studio at that time. So they used that to their advantage to take the songs a little bit away from the guitar. But again, the Donovan factor was such an influence that John was more determined to capture that particular style on tape so back to your original question yes okay <laughs> yeah because sometimes when you're writing your melody might be based on a harmonic that naturally comes out that you would hear on that guitar but played on any other instrument you wouldn't because you just hear the chords but sometimes on a, on a guitar when you play especially acoustic you'll get a stray harmonic that adds an extra layer to it Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially when you're arpeggiating on a guitar. That's when those harmonics really shine through and you hear the individual value of each string as it's being played. And when you're just strumming, a lot of that goes away. So much of it has to do with the type of chord that you're hitting and then the note that you're singing. Yeah. And sometimes you end up making some pretty serious magic because you've hit a note with your voice that blends so well with this chord and actually turns it into another chord. The combination of hands on the guitar and notes coming off vocal cords can make for some wondrous sounding music. And that happened a lot with the Beatles. Absolutely. Well, that and, and the fact that you had three of them playing three separate guitars at times. Mm -hmm. To the Easter demos, uh, you know, a question I'd asked you earlier, you know, do we know what guitars they were playing in the Easter demos? Paul was probably the Martin, as we have surmised. Of course, they were double-tracking things as well. So it's possible that they were using multiple different guitars, even on the rough demos. Yeah, that's true. I'm not exactly sure what those individual guys brought over there. And they may have used whatever guitars George had laying around as well. As I said, he had just gotten his Gibson J200, which he only had for about a year, I think. I'm guessing that he had his 
J160 at his house by then. So much of their gear was stored at Abbey Road, but I think they were taking a lot of their stuff home by then. And I think that by the time that John actually started the White Album, he had been living at Ringo's place in Montague Square. And so he had a lot of gear over there that he was messing around with. Among them was his a guitar that very few people talk about, which was a Guild Starfire 12-string. Mm. And he was sort of messing around with that. And we'll talk a little bit later on about where I think that guitar actually shows his face on the White Album. This gorgeous piece of guitar craft is a custom-made Guild Starfire 12-string that was presented to John Lennon at New York's Warwick Hotel in August of 1966. By this point, the Beatles were so huge that instrument manufacturers were falling over themselves to try and get the boys to play their stuff. Any guitar that turned up in the hands of the Beatles was sure to be a huge seller. So a Guild representative named Mark Drange arranged to crash a press conference the boys were holding at the Warwick. He was armed with this beauty right here. After the conference, Mark approached the group, and George Harrison assumed the guitar was meant for him, because George was the main 12-string guy in the band and the most obsessive gearhead of the bunch. Instead, Mark made a beeline for John Lennon and unveiled this flame maple, gold-plated custom guitar, and he presented it to John on the spot in hopes that the Beatle would be so blown away by it that he'd make it his main axe. George wasn't pleased. Unfortunately for Mark, John Lennon didn't really care about this guitar, and it wound up with George anyhow. Barry Tashian of the band The Remains, who toured with the Beatles in 66, recalled George playing this guitar on the tour plane. The two of them passed it back and forth trying to impress each other. Now, the Beatles stopped performing after the 66 tour, so this guild never saw stage use. But it's an amazing example of mid-60s custom guitar work. Anyway, back to Escher. I, I, have, I have no idea exactly what they had with them. I'm only speculating. Okay, fair enough. We go into the White Album itself. You were talking about new guitars. One of the things I was really surprised to see is that they were playing around with a fretless at that time. Yeah, the Eastwood fretless guitar. Um, which I've only recently become aware of. There was an interview that they did with Kenny Everett from the, from the BBC. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so he stopped in at EMI to interview all the guys, and John was messing around with this fretless guitar all the way through the interview. <laughs> yeah. Somebody stole my gown. Somebody stole my gown. Can you sing me a goodbye jingle? Okay. It's just Goodbye jingle. Goodbye jingle. Goodbye. Goodbye jingle. Good. Goodbye jingle. Goodbye. Goodbye. And now a word for all our American listeners. Goodbye jingle. Goodbye jingle. Goodbye. Goodbye. Wonderful. I mean, it's not known exactly what it was used or how it was used on the album but there are uh, a lot of weird sounds that happen on that record that sound like slide guitar but it may very well have been the eastwood fretless um on helter skelter for example that would seem to be a good supposition and they clearly never kept with it as much like the experiment ringo had with playing two bass drums yeah <laughs> That's right. They had a massive influx of new gear for that whole. Ringo had a new drum kit. Ludwig had sent him a brand new Ludwig kit, which is best known as the Let It Be kit, but he actually got it in the middle of the Wine album and created a huge drum kit with two bass drums. Wow. He tried it like once and it's like, nope, not going to do that. I'm not Keith Moon. (laughs) (laughs) So back to this Eastwood fretless, the mystery guitar. There are a couple of weird places where some some strange stuff is happening. If you listen to the outtakes from the first version of Revolution, there are recordings that were made by Yoko in the control room where she's talking into the mic, but you can hear the Beatles working on Revolution in the background and doing all sorts of overdubs. And what sounds like 
a slide guitar was being worked on during one of the overdubs. Bits and pieces um, of that make its way into the audible parts of Revolution Number no. 9. Uh-huh. Yeah. And also on Revolution 1, at the, at the very beginning, there's a sound of somebody hitting a guitar that's completely detuned. The strings have been loosened up to where they're making no recognizable sound at all. They're just slapping against the pickups. I don't know what kind of guitar that was. Maybe Something- it was just there for an effect. It could be. Yeah, I mean, you yeah. know, since we're talking about Revolution 1, let's see, what were they playing on that? John was playing his casino on the electric side. As an overdub, I think. But I think he was playing his J160 for the basic track. The lead, if you want to call it that, is acoustic, and it's on the J160, I would guess. Yeah, definitely. And then George is playing what is Strat. Mm-hmm. I think so, yeah. And Paul is on piano? Uh, I believe so. Okay. Yeah, because the take that they used went on for a really, really long time, which was ended up being the basis for Revolution Number 9. As you say, that's what Take 20 is what it's called. Yeah. And we do have yeah. most of that out there, I think, on bootleg. Yeah, and you, you can hear it, it gradually picking up in tempo as well as they get a little bit more excited and, and more improvisational. It almost reaches the tempo of the single. Let's go back to the beginning of the record. You know, you start off with two guitar-heavy songs back in the USSR and Dear Prudence. USSR, which is Paul on drums. John, I believe, is playing bass on that track. Am I right? The Fender? Yeah, because another new guitar, they had a Fender Bass 6 brought in. So that allowed John and George to contribute bass guitar in tracks where... Paul was doing something else. Maybe Paul wanted to play guitar. Maybe he wanted to play the piano. But yeah, on USSR, Paul was the drummer. So John laid down a bass track and George laid down the guitar track. And then Paul went and overdubbed piano later. That's what happened. Then Dear Prudence is mostly the casino? Yeah, the casino plugged directly in. Direct inject, as they called it. Yeah. D-I. Yeah, exactly. With his E-string tuned down to a D. I love the sound of his playing on Dear Prudence. I mean, it makes the song. It really does. It's perfect. It's beautiful. And then to to take that and overdub it, too, was, was wonderful. And brilliant guitar work by George as well. Now, I'm not sure exactly which guitar he's using on that track, either his Strat or his Gibson SG, which he was really into at that period. In the scope of things, do we know when that was recorded? It was definitely in the first half of the sessions because it was at a time when they had already done Your Blues and several other tracks. And then right in the middle of the sessions, Ringo left. Okay. And was talking about quitting the band. And then he went on vacation to Greece for a week. And so it was during his absence that those songs were recorded. So at least before oh. Eric gifted him with the Les Paul, then? I think so, yeah. Yeah, so we're late August is what we're talking about. Oh, and incidentally, we now know that Ringo was back and that there was a session at Trident that is not recorded on the last day before they went back to EMI. So it's entirely possible still that Ringo may be doing some of those overdubs at the end of Dear Prudence. Nothing to do with oh. guitars, but some fan photos of Ringo at Trident on a day when the Beatles are not recorded as being in the studio, but why else would Ringo be there? Uh-huh. So. The question is, was Dear Prudence, were the basic tracks for Dear Prudence recorded at Trident or at Abbey Road? That is also a question, yes. But just found it interesting. This is something that's turned up not too long ago. It's like, here's some photos of Ringo at Trident, and it's like, well, what day? And they knew what day it was. So You know, it's, it's amazing how even all of these years later, suddenly there's something it's like, wow, we never knew that. <laughs> yeah. We're back to it being 50-50 that Ringo is doing some overdubs at the end of Dear Prudence. The big sort of drum solo at the end is in fact an overdub. When the rock band Multitracks came out around 2009, John's isolated vocal and acoustic guitar were very easy to listen to. And you could hear the original drum track underneath that performance. 
It's much more of a straight groove and it's sped up to match the tempo of John's playing. But what happened there was that they decided to go back and make the drums bigger and more lively and more exciting. But because they were going to wipe the original drum track, they had to have some sort of a click track in order to play to. So you hear somebody whacking a chair just to get the drummer in. And it's right there at the line, won't you come out to play? That's where the cut is. Whoever is on drums there, whether it's Ringo or Paul, is off and running. And at some point in the middle of that performance, the towel falls off of the snare. And so all of a sudden you go from this muted snare drum to this big wide open rim shot snare drum. And they just, they were on a roll. So they just kept going until it was done. And then that's how it appeared. Well, amazing. You wanted to talk Lucy, George Harrison's Les Paul standard. It's the guitar that Eric Clapton played on While My Guitar Gently Weeps. But it has a rich history in the White Album beyond that. That's right. The guitar originally left the Gibson factory in 1957 as a gold top. All the 57s had gold tops. That was just one of their special features. But somebody had put a Bigsby tremolo on it for a while, and John Sebastian of the Loving Spoonful owned it during the mid-60s, during the height of their success. And then he ended up trading it to Rick Derringer, who at the time was with the McCoys. And he played it as a gold top for a while and loved it. But he lived very close to the Gibson factory in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And he decided to take it to the Gibson and have them refinish it with that new cherry finish that was showing up on a lot of the SGs. Mm -hmm. And once that happened, he hated it. He said it was just a completely different (laughs) guitar. It didn't sound right, didn't play right. So he took it to Dan Armstrong's guitar shop in New York City and sold it to them. And just a few days later, Eric Clapton walked in and took it home with him. By this time, it was 1968, and he lent the guitar to George Harrison. I don't think he ever gifted it to him. George dubbed the guitar Lucy, after the red-headed actress Lucille Ball. Some make the comparison that the guitar started as a gold top and was refinished in red, and that Lucille Ball was a blonde that dyed her hair red, but this is inaccurate. Lucy was a brunette who went blonde because her boss, Hattie Carnegie, told her to. She later dyed her hair red. It, George always said it was, uh, it was kind of on permanent loan. But it was in the studio, so Clapton played it on While My Guitar Gently Weeps. George seems to have a bit of a strange memory with regards to where his guitars go. The J200? The J200 ended up with Bob Dylan. Oh, okay, with Bob oh, Dylan. Yes. And then, uh, yeah, that's right. We see photos of Dylan with it, don't we? On the cover of Nashville Skyline, yeah. he's holding George's guitar. I know one of the White Album guitars ended up with Pete Ham. Yeah, the SG. So. The one he'd used earlier on, and he and then as soon as he got the Les Paul, that became his main guitar. So he uh, mm. ditched the SG because he wasn't playing it, and ended up giving that one to uh, to Mister Ham. And the uh, the guy who owns it now is uh, Jim Erzy, owner of the Indianapolis Colts. Yeah, it showed up with the Ed Sullivan kit. I think I think they were yeah. both, they were all on display together. So that SG must be the one that he plays on the video then for uh, No Matter What. Yes, yep. exactly. So, okay, back to Lucy. It is the one that Eric Clapton plays the solo on, on While My Guitar Gently Weeps. I mean, as the story goes, George bought Eric Clapton in, and it's like, are you going to play it or not? And Clapton didn't want to, and it's like, well, I've got just the guitar you can play it on, and he handed it to him. Aha! Uh-huh. It's a cool story. I haven't heard that one. Clapton is just such a master of tone. There was something about when Clapton plugs in and he dials in his particular amp sound and it's just something, it was a moment that the Beatles could never have achieved. You know, they just had different ideas about, you know, what amp tone was. And George learned a lot from Eric as far as like different guitar techniques. But I think that after that period, their ideas of how to get more aggressive guitar sounds in the studio really changed. Well, I mean, things would change again on Abbey Road. I mean, that's why the Get Back sessions are really kind of almost a throwback 
It's like we're gonna play. Mm-hmm. Not only are we gonna play guitars, we're gonna play guitars the way we used to play guitars. Yeah, exactly. No effects, just straight into the amp, clean tone. Barrett with a Les Paul reminds me of the Incredible Beano album by John Mayall's Blues Breakers, and Eric playing his Les Paul. That's all over that album. Wow. What year was that, Martin? The album was released on the 22nd of July, 1966. And this proved a real breakthrough record for John Mayall. On the 30th of July, it made number six in the UK album charts. The album stayed in the British charts for 17 weeks. Clapton's vocal debut was featured on his cover of Robert Johnson's Rambling On My Mind. He was a little reticent about singing it, remembers John Mayall, but I had no doubts whatsoever. Originally, Eric Clapton was playing a Fender Telecaster and a Vox AC30 amplifier. But for this recording session, he switched to a 1960s Gibson Les Paul Standard and a Marshall amplifier. What was he playing when he joined Cream? Was he still on the Les Paul then, or had he already moved over to the Stratocaster by then? Well, he had the SG that he had painted psychedelic, mm, which true. eventually ended up in the, in the hands of Todd Rundgren. And for a while, he also had an a, a, a ES-335 that he was playing. I'm pretty sure it was um, a, pretty sure it was a gold top Les Paul on the Beano album. Okay. He did have a, a Sunburst Les Paul okay. which he had bought from Andy Summers. Yeah. Right around the early Cream days. Is that so Blues Breakers that was pre-Cream? That's pre-Cream. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You yeah, love he that left album. out uh, by 67, right? Because he was solo for a little while there. Mhm. Off the path just a little bit but uh andy summers said that he's sold clapton his les paul in sort of an emergency situation because the other one that he had had he sudden for some reason he didn't have it anymore i don't know if it was stolen (laughs) but martin to your point i think that might have been the guitar in question yeah we're actually going to go back a little bit and talk about the beano burst here because it was andy summers that first brought this guitar to eric clapton's attention So to quote the police guitarist Andy Summers, About the time that we shared a stage at the Flamingo, I acquired a new Gibson from a store on Charing Cross Road. When Eric sees me with it, a 59 Les Paul Sunburst, he asks where I bought it. I innocently tell him that they have another one for sale for 80 quid and he could go and get it. Eric gets the other Les Paul and eventually changes the sound of rock guitar forever. So guys, this was a famous Les Paul that was used on the Beano, John Mayall and the Bluesbreakers album, which was stolen when Cream were first rehearsing. Around the time that Cream went into the studio for the Fresh Cream sessions, Eric was looking for another Les Paul and he recalled, and he recalled that Andy Summers had one. So to quote Andy Summers again, Knowing that I have the other one, Eric starts calling it and asking me to sell it to him. By this time, I have moved on to the Fender Telecaster and I also think that there's something wrong with my Les Paul. The back pickup doesn't work or something. He is offering me £200 for it, which is more than twice what I paid for it. The next day, I drop off the Les Paul at AdVision in the West End, where Eric's in the middle of recording with Jack and Ginger. I go into the toilet at the side of the reception area, and when I come out, I hear Eric's voice over the PA system, which is inadvertently hooked into the foyer. He is remarking how great the guitar is, just like his old one. Okay, guys, so the conundrum is, did Eric actually use the what we call the summons burst on the fresh cream sessions. He received the guitar, but if it had a problem with the back pickup, who's to know if he actually used it there. However, he was actually developing what he called the woman tone, which was using the neck pickup with the uh, volume rolled right off. So maybe that could have been the inception to that idea. Moving back to white album stuff. Talk about some of the other songs where Lucy shows up. I believe he's using that on not guilty. I guess another title for that would be not releasable. <laughs> uh, yeah. I did a hundred takes of it. Yeah. <laughs> Your blues. I think he used it on back in the USSR. I think he used it on helter skelter. Glass onion was one of the last tracks they did with the album. So that was likely the one probably birthday, possibly Martha, my dear Savoy trouble. These are all question marks. Of course, there's no way of knowing for sure. We don't have any real good details of what they're playing in each session, which is unfortunate. Happiness is a Warm Gun is an interesting scenario because the solo that's on the I Need to Fix bit is you can play it on a standard electric guitar. But as far as like all of the note bending and and the seamless pitch bending that goes on in that solo, that actually suggests the Eastwood fretless. 
of them good enough to really be able to play the fretless that well? Question mark. The Beatles had a way of taking some instruments that they couldn't play very well, but using them anyway to create a soundscape. All You Need Is Love, for example, they were messing around on stringed instruments. If you, you isolate that track, that is a weird trip. But in the context of the song, it's kind of magical. So I can see them sort of messing about with the fretless guitar on a tune like Helter Skelter just to create some chaos. Haven't we all done that before in a studio? Oh, yeah. I certainly have. Yeah, I did. I did with a theremin. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, in the aforementioned interview, they still don't know what to make of that guitar. It's, it's like, well, it's just this weird little guitar that George picked up. So it came from George, right? Yeah, yeah. He saw it in Los Angeles in 1968. Okay. And then it was delivered to him and he bought it home with him. And I would guess that it probably just lived in Abbey Road. And it's like, oh, yeah, let's see what we can do with that. And, you know, like you say in the interview, it's like, oh, it's just this weird little guitar. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so what What else? Um, what other guitar is George playing on the White Album? Uh, he's playing his SG. Yep, he had his SG for the first half, and then we got the Les Paul. He put the SG down. And now he had a 65 Epiphone Casino stripped like John's, but there are no pictures of that guitar being present at EMI during the sessions. So uh, I think we... We kind of have to assume that he had his Strat, his SG, and his Les Paul as his main three electric guitars. And then he had his own Gibson J160E, which had the finish preserved. That was in the studio. John played that guitar. I'm not sure if he was actually messing around or he did actual takes with that guitar. But he definitely had access to that. But George was so fond of the bigger tone from the J200, he stuck with that for songs like Piggies, Long, 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 and While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Guitar Gently Weeps. You've got just so many really nice guitars all over that song. Yeah. Separate from Clapton's brilliant soloing. You know, this would be a lot easier if they released footage that they'd recorded that we've seen a little bit of from these sessions. There's not video from the, the Gently Weep sessions. I meant from the album sessions. Ah, know, from yeah, the album yeah, sessions. Yeah. I, I don't know how yeah. much of that there is. I mean, they filmed some for the for the Apple promo thing, but uh, did they mm-hmm. film much more than that? They filmed some stuff for the Hey Jude sessions, but they were mainly rehearsals for Hey Jude. The film crew was filming them at Abbey Road, but the actual single for Hey Jude was recorded at Trident. But you do see some little bits and pieces. You definitely see John playing his stripped J160E on that track. And Paul on piano, Ringo on his old Ludwig kit, and George up in the control room. With George Martin. And Ken Scott. Right around that time was when George and Paul had an argument about George's role, about George's guitar playing on Hey Jude, which Paul didn't like. So I don't know if George said, well, I just won't play on it. And then he went up. It seems like Paul, Paul would just like, well, just go up, get out of here. Paul wouldn't do that. So George probably said, all right, I, there's, uh, there's not a role for me in this song, so I'm just going to go up into the control room. You know, maybe overdub something later, which he ended up doing. He actually put some guitar on the finished Hey Jude single. Uh, and it should be noted they did fake some footage using that and using some stuff from uh, the Rock and Roll Circus in Eric's uh, Life in 12 Bars special. There's this bit where all of a sudden there's, quote unquote, the Beatles and Clapton in the studio. And it's like, that's not right. <laughs> oh, I, I haven't seen that. Yeah, li- oh. Life in 12 Bars. Deep fake in it back then? <laughs> not good enough to be called a deep fake. No. They, they just cut from like John turning right to Eric from Rock and Roll Circus with the background carefully blurred out. Uh <laughs> So very quickly, I, I want to get back to this Guild Starfire 12 string. Okay. Um, you know, we, we know that John had it during that period. And I don't know for a fact that he brought it into EMI. But if you listen to the isolated bass track for While My Guitar Gently Weeps, there are three octaves that are all playing the same. There's the bass line, Paul's bass line. But there's also a 12-string guitar that is doubling it. So you've got three actives of these notes. And there wasn't a Rickenbacker 12-string present there. So I have to assume that it's 
John's Guild Starfire that he was really into at the time. And it's the only time on the album that you hear it. Again, just speculation. All right. Any other songs that we want to talk about guitar-wise? I do want to briefly talk about, we said a little bit about how they got into the idea of stripping down their guitars. Some people, namely Donovan, will claim he's the one who told them to do that in India. Okay. <laughs> you know, Donovan likes to take credit for things, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah. Yellow submarine for one. <laughs> um, but so, but, um, but, but yeah. what John and George would get into that idea, and both of them would say that uh, it would be a tremendous change to their playing. Yeah, I'm sure of it. I mean, the acoustic, clearly that's the case, as we've discussed, the, putting that thick paint on there, especially because that would have been thick paint. That wouldn't have just been like a, a clear little acrylic thing at the time. It's really true. If, if something sounds good to you as a musician, if you're getting a good sound out of your instrument, you're just going to play better and you're going to be more inspired and you're going to be bolder. So I think... John's guitar playing, when he really got into the sound of that Epiphone Casino, it gave him an enormous amount of courage. And his guitar playing really steps up in a cool way on the White Album, in a way that you hadn't heard him play electric guitar in, in several years. Well, I mean, it's, it's the thing that he would say much later during the Playboy interview, that he considered himself the invisible guitarist in much the same way that George was the invisible vocalist. He knew he was good. And the public just didn't realize it. Yeah, because no one had heard John do a guitar solo since 1964. Wow. Can we talk about basses for a second? Uh, sure. Paul eventually stripped down his Rickenbacker 4001S bass, but that wasn't until the Get Back Sessions. Well, it still had his psychedelic paint finish during the White Album, and he had access to it, but he also had picked up a left-handed... Fender jazz bass and the jazz bass is what you're hearing primarily as the bass instrument on the white album and he played it through a vox foundation bass the jazz bass and that vox foundation allowed him to get some gnarly tones with a lot of high end so that's really the the sound of the white album is unique to every other beatles record and that suddenly you hear this ding 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 a very percussive sound on the bass that you hear all over the record. And you can hear so much better on the Giles Martin mix. Yeah, definitely. Highlight for me as a bassist is probably going back to While My Guitar Gently Weeps. I love the fills that Paul puts in there on that jazz bass. They're just so beautifully percussive, like you said. Yeah, and there's so many wonderful spaces in there, aren't there? Mm, absolutely. I just love bass players who don't feel the need to fill every single hole in the spectrum the layout for a half a bar or whatever and it's amazing because when it comes back in it's so cool bill wyman was really good at that there's some really beautifully melodic bits in there so you'll get the pause and then you'll get the do 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 so it's not like some bassists would do uh, well nowadays they probably do a more fancy run but he's doing just what the song needs and it's providing a rhythm while also adding a melodicism to it at the same time. Mm -hmm. And for the listeners, if you watch uh, McCartney 321, which is him and Rick Rubin together, Rubin actually isolates Paul's bass line on While My Guitar Gently Weeps so that you can hear it in its isolated splendor. And it's so beautiful. And then your comments are ironic in light of something where George said, don't play so much. <laughs> Sorry, mate. <laughs> yeah, but he gets a nice melodic run in there as well that I really love on something. We are running out of time, but let's close with a little bit about the Vox Conqueror, the amp that they used. Paul has commented that what he really liked about that was that you could push it. And he mentions that the effect he really liked to get out of that was you plug in an acoustic guitar and you can overdrive it to the point that it almost sounds like an electric guitar. Yeah, the Conqueror was the secret weapon for that album. I'm trying to think of the exact songs that you might hear it on. I think Savoy Truffle, George's solo on Savoy Truffle, I think is very likely that Vox Conqueror. But you could run so many different things, but you could run the piano through it. The sound on Birthday was a piano that was mic'd and then ran through the Vox Conqueror. And then it has a mid-range boost knob. 
is you could turn it, and that's how you get that wow, wow, wow. Hey, Bulldog, that's, not off the White album, album, but around that time, there's a perfect example of a guitar going through the Vox Conquer. Yeah, absolutely. Now, when it comes to what bands featured this amplifier in their lineup, it's pretty much tough to beat the Beatles. Now, of course, there were a few other bands from the 60s, 70s, and the 80s that did have this amplifier in their lineup. But unfortunately, I just don't know enough about those bands, and there isn't enough information circulating out there on exactly what was going on with it all. So I, of course, chose not to include it in this video. But when it comes to the Beatles, this amplifier left a major mark in music history. From the White Album, all those cool effects you hear on Birthday at the End with the MRB being switched, Helter Skelter, there's a lot. So let's just dive in briefly about the Beatles using this amplifier. The Beatles were first seen with the amps on the All You Need Is Love live broadcast on June 25th, 1967. The next sighting was on the Hello Goodbye promotional video November 10th, 1967. During that session, however, they used UL730 cabs, which is about the same size as the Conqueror cabs, featured the same T1088 speakers, thus making the cab virtually no different than the Conqueror. During the promotional taping of Lady Madonna and Hey Bulldog, you can see the real Conqueror cab without any of the hardware. Around the same time, the Beatles had an insurance quote made up of their Vox equipment. The list shows them owning two complete Conqueror setups, along with one Conqueror speaker cab. Right before the album started, they sat down at Apple offices and met with the Fender reps because Brian Epstein was dead and they weren't bound to that gentleman's agreement they had with Vox anymore. And so Fender set them up with all of these different things. They set them up with a couple of deluxe amps. They set them up with that Fender Bass 6. I think they already had a Fender Blonde Bassman and a, a Fender Dual Showman that they had access to, but how often they were used is, is still in question. But you know those deluxe amps, you see those during the Hey Jude and Revolution videos. Well, so those were brand new. Well, it drives you right in to get back with the instruments that they're playing and how they're playing them. You know, things have changed somewhat by Get Back, but, but it's still more or less in the same mode. Yeah, they were saying goodbye to Vox for good by then, <laughs> except for the PA system, which was crap. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. Any last comments on this, Martin? Because I know we're, we're running out of time here. I'm really happy to have learnt some new information from Darren about this because I always wondered when Paul's bass first came into being. We didn't cover all the White Album, but we, we got through a healthy chunk of it, I think. Yeah, I think so. We got the important points. <laughs> yeah. It's the bloody Beatles White Album. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> all right. Thanks, Darren. You know, we're, we're so always happy to have you. And, you know, maybe once we get the new song, you can join us. We're, we're trying to get together, all four of us, uh, sometime in early October, assuming that we do actually see the song in September. Call me anytime. I always love coming on here. It's a lot of fun. And Martin, you know, thanks. I know this is kind of a last minute thing. John was originally supposed to be here with us, but he had had some family issues and we wish him and all of these stones well. Absolutely. You, you can call me anytime at all. <laughs> all you yeah. got to do is call and I'll be there. Well, I'm always here. You are. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Very good. Thanks, everybody. We will be back with a new show next week and don't forget to look for kiddo tool and myself at the fest for beatles fans in chicago both doing a uh fab with along with kenneth womack we're all looking forward to the mal evans book at the end of this year and a special episode of toppermost of the poppermost looking at the local charts from 1963 the beatles did actually appear in random places, including WLS in Chicago and right here in Houston on KNUZ in May of 1963. Oh, if only I could get the uh, get an airplane to go and join. <laughs> well, <laughs> maybe next year, right? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> All right. We will talk to you then. All right. Thanks a lot. Take care.
subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. an exceptionally rare guitar with an even more interesting story behind it. But let's focus on the make first. It's a make I rarely have ever seen. Tell me a little bit about the maker. So this is Bartels of California in Riverside, California in the 1960s. They're making um, some new models of guitars. And this is a very rare one because this was a prototype. It's a fretless guitar. That, that's what makes it unique. And it's, it's pretty much the only one that was made by Bartels. So 1964 to 68, maybe, during that period. And then the story goes that the company owner, as always said, he gave one to John Lennon and he gave one to Jimi Hendrix. This is the Lennon one. Yeah. So, Ray, you're the owner. How did it come into your possession? In the 70s and 80s, I was doing lots of uh, recording sessions on guitar. And one of the things I used to do regularly was sessions for handmade films. Okay that George Harrison started. I was asked to play guitar, which was great. Had lots of laughs, and at the end of the session, George said, I'm not sure what to do with this, but you have a go. And I just got, you know, handed <laughs> the guitar. It's a strange old thing to play because it's... It's not like a <laughs> fret, so, I mean, they can play things like... But um, I played a few notes and he said, yeah, he said, you're definitely getting more out of it than I am. It's doing better for you. Why don't you have it? So, oh, it's not a bad, you know, accolade that you no, can it's play great. better than George Harris. It's actually kept to think of it. Yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, at the time, it was quite, it, it was, it was quite rock and roll so This is not the greatest of rock and roll guitar unless you're going to play slide or something like that. Okay. Free. i tell you one thing. There's sickness going on, and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again. <laughs>